Mark Drake is on a mission to train leaders around the world about the miracle and mystery of Christ living his life in and through all who will believe. Join us on this journey into the heart of the real new covenant and the transforming power of true grace. All right, let's go ahead and get out our Bibles. Now, I'm going to be covering a lot of material. Uh, we're going to pick up on the second half from last week, but if you were not able to be with us, it's all right. You'll still uh, understand where we are, what we're talking about. I'm going to be going through a lot of verses. You're not going to be able to look them all up, but you'll be able to go to the podcast starting probably tomorrow. It should be up, and you can go back over these. But I do want you to go ahead and find John 13, because in a little bit, we're going to be reading together a passage there. Last week, we started out talking about this principle of why God must run us out of our own strength. We talked about the fact that new covenant life is different from old covenant living in a variety of ways, but perhaps the most important way is that in the new covenant, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would actually come and live inside of us, and that in the new covenant, He would be living in us and through us. Of course, very well-known passage in Galatians 2 where Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ, however I do live. However, it's not actually me who's living, but it's Christ who's living in and through me. This concept of Christ in me, that we are the temple of God, this was not a metaphor for the early church. This was a literal belief. Paul refers to it in Romans 8 and says, if the Spirit of Christ dwells in your mortal body, in your physical body, and he referred to this as a mystery because it's hard for us to comprehend how God could live inside of mortals like us. But that's what the new covenant is all about. However, to understand how the new covenant life of Christ works in us, Jesus gave us several metaphors in his teaching about being the vine and we're the branch and the result is fruit. Drawing life from him, apart from him, we can do nothing. But one of the hardest lessons for us to learn and to have to relearn throughout our natural life on this fallen globe, is that for resurrection life to be realized within us, there has to be a death. There has to be a crucifixion. And for you and I, walking with Jesus and experiencing his life inside of us has to do with dying to our own best ability in order to please God. Certainly, Jesus, in his teachings, as he referred to the law of Moses, always raised the requirements up so high that human beings could never, ever attain them. He did that on purpose so that his men would understand that the life that God has to offer in the new covenant is not our life improved, but his life being literally lived through us. The week before he was crucified, he gave them this analogy. He said, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, unless that happens, that single grain abides alone. But if it falls and dies, the result will be much fruit. It's completely opposite of the way we would normally think in our lives. But to experience the life of God requires a dying on our own side so that his life can emerge. And Jesus taught this for three and a half years, several different ways that he approached this with his guys. Then when we come up to the very last night before he's betrayed, this is where we were talking last week. 
We refer to that dinner that they had as the Last Supper. They didn't call it that, but we do for reference sake. They met in the upstairs banquet hall of John Mark's mom and dad's house. We call that the upper room. But the conversation that went on in that upper room around that table, maybe three or four hours or so, is incredibly important conversation because these are the last words, essentially, that Jesus is going to be able to say to these guys before the crucifixion. And in that, uh, as the beginning of that dinner, shows us the way these guys are still thinking. Because when they came into that room, of course, I'm, I'm sure that you've heard it referred to before, that because of the way they lived in those days, most of the time they wore sandals. Uh, their feet were always dirty. So one of the uh, customs and habits when you go someplace to eat was that you would have a servant wash your feet. When those men came into that upstairs banquet hall, there was no servant to wash the feet, though there was the bowl for it and there was the towel for it. But when Jesus walked in, he saw right away that his 12 men were all standing around looking to see who was going to humble themselves and wash the other's feet, and none of them would do it. So Jesus, in John 13, and near the beginning of the chapter, we find out this is how the whole evening begins. Jesus kneels down. And he says to them at that time, he says, whoever would be the greatest among you must learn to be a servant to all. That in the kingdom of God, this is about laying our lives down so that God's life can be raised up within us. And he washes their feet. It's also interesting that for almost three and a half years, there's been an ongoing argument amongst these 12 guys. The argument was believing that Jesus, if he were the Messiah, was going to destroy the government of Rome and put Israel literally back in charge of the whole earth. That's what they were looking for. So one of the arguments that were told went on repeatedly uh, during that three and a half years amongst those men was who would have the best authority seats in the kingdom? Who would be the highest in the kingdom? And this was an ongoing debate or argument among them. Several times Jesus rebuked them for even thinking along these lines. He said, my kingdom is not like that. On one occasion, James and John, brothers, actually went to their mommy and said, mommy, Jesus won't give us the best seats. And she went to Jesus to negotiate the best seats in the coming kingdom. But this argument goes on and on. Three and a half years later, now these are the guys that Jesus is going to turn the kingdom over to. And yet we're told that after three and a half years in that upper room, they are still arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus knows that unless that outer shell of self-will is broken, the inner life of Christ will never be able to come out of these men. So he begins to talk to them, and we talked about this last night. All four gospel writers uh, paint part of the picture about the conversation and what happened in the upper room. When we put them all four together, we begin to see all the different pieces. We get a much bigger picture. Mark refers to this, and as they're uh, having their dinner, they've shared what we now refer to as communion or uh, the, the, the Lord's table, uh, the bread and the wine. And Jesus is making them promises about, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to come back, and I'm going to come by the Spirit, and He's going to live in you, and all that. And then, as He's coming to the end of the conversation, He says these words, You will all fall away. 
you will all, before this night is over, you will all fall away. Now, this is after three and a half years. This had to have been quite a slap in the face. And he goes on and he says, it's actually been prophesied that you would fall away. He says, for as it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But he doesn't stop there. The very next words are, but. Now, if we compare Matthew and Luke to this conversation, we find out that the moment Jesus said, you are all going to fall away before the night is over. At that moment, they all begin to argue amongst themselves saying, well, you may, but I won't. You may, but I won't. You may, but I won't. Jesus goes on talking, but they don't hear, obviously, they don't hear the things that Jesus says because the very next words are, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you and meet you into Gal in Galilee. But they don't hear this because they're arguing about who's going to fall and who's going to stand. The very next words in John 4 and Mark 14, Peter declared, even if all of them fall away, I will not. I love that picture. Can you imagine Peter leaning over toward Jesus and saying, yes, Jesus, I agree with you. I believe you're right. They will all fall away. I've, I've known those guys have been weak this whole three and a half years. I, I agree. They will, but not me. Not me. Now, if there was ever a setup that pride goes before a fall, here it is right here. Peter declared, even if they all fall away, I will not. Now, Jesus begins to speak and says, Peter, I tell you the truth. Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows, you yourself will disown me three times. Yeah, Peter, they're going to fall away. You, on the other hand, are going to curse and swear three times. You don't even know me. You're going to be the chief follower-awayer. That's, that's not English, is it? I just made up a couple of words. But I think, I think you get the point. Now, Peter, it says, emphatically, the next verse, but Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And now they all jump in and it says, and all the others said the same thing. Now imagine that, three and a half years they have been with Jesus. For three and a half years, they have seen everything he said and did came to pass. Everything he said and did was right. Everything he spoke either happened or they saw that it was the truth. And yet at this moment, none of them are willing to agree that he knows what he's talking about because they're all defending themselves. And you know what they're defending? They're defending their loyalty. They're defending their commitment to him. That sounds like the right thing to do, right? But not in this case. They would have been far better off since they already know Jesus has been right they would have been far better off to say, you know, Jesus, last three and a half years, every single time you've been right. So I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm just going to take a wild guess that maybe you're right this time too. Maybe what we ought to be saying is, what should we do after we fall away? But that's not what they do. Why not? Because they're hanging on to self-will, and it seems right to them. It seems right to declare their loyalty. It seems right. But I want to tell you, it is not right for you and I to try to hang on to our own best effort because our own best effort will fall short every time. 
And the life that Jesus invites us into is a life where we freely and willingly admit our inability. But we don't stop there. We then put our faith in his ability living inside of us. Paul refers repeatedly to trials and troubles that he and his team went through. But then he would always follow it up with, these things happened so that we would not rely on ourselves, but we would rely on God. In another place he says, these troubles happened to us so that we would die, but his life would be renewed within us always, again and again. In one case he says, we die daily, and yet we are being renewed daily, the inner man, the inner life. Paul understood that our promises have to fail because his promises have to be resurrected in our lives, and that's what we build our trust on. So they're having this conversation, and Jesus says then to Peter, of course, you are going to curse and swear three times that you don't even know me. They're all disagreeing. No, 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 we can't agree with you at all. In John, when he talks about this story in chapter 13, John quotes Jesus saying in the middle of this conversation, I'm telling you these things now before they happen so that when they do happen, you will know that I am the one and I told you the truth. One would think that at that very moment they would want to perk up their ears and say, okay, if you're telling us beforehand, we need to pay attention. But this struggle of self-defense, this struggle of human effort, trying to keep good things but keeping them out of our own willpower. By the way, if you can do it out of your own willpower, then you get the credit. But of course, God is doing all of this so that all credit, all glory, all honor goes to Him. And you and I will be the result of His working and the result of His doing. But this conversation goes on and on. And Jesus, knowing that in a matter of just a handful of hours here, he's going to be betrayed, taken away, beaten, and ultimately crucified. He's trying to speak words into these men that will hold them during this time. But again, they're not listening. Luke refers to this, and uh, he adds uh, a whole other dimension into the conversation. In Luke 22, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Peter's other name, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. And I've given him permission to do it. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> like, that's like the doctor saying, this is not going to hurt. <laughs> it's going to hurt. But it's for your good. But imagine this now. They're sitting around the table. They're arguing about this. Finally, it's as if Jesus said, hey, look, everybody just shut up. And Peter, it's time for you to be quiet for a minute. Listen to me careful, boy. The devil has asked permission to, to sift you like wheat. And I have given him permission to do that. Now, the next word in Luke is but. And again, Peter's not listening. Peter is emphatically declaring his loyalty rather than just saying, well, you know me better than I know me, so you must know it. Instead of doing that, he is emphatically saying, no, not me, not me, not me. So he doesn't hear when Jesus continues on. But I have prayed for you, Simon, and your faith will not fail. You're going to go through this sifting. There's no way around it. You are going to go through the worst thing you could possibly imagine. Now, Jesus didn't tell him now, but we know now. Jesus could have said, and oh, by the way, 
a couple of the guys sitting around the table here, they're going to write all of your story out so that every time you go to a new church, people are already going to know how bad you messed it up tonight. But you know what people are going to get from reading that story that Luke and Mark and Matthew are going to write? They're going to get a lot of hope. They're going to get a lot of hope that even one of Jesus' closest men could blow it so badly, but Jesus already knew it, and he already saw him going well on the other side. He already saw him not only just making it through, but being a better man because of a better why, because he would no longer trust in his own ability. He would learn to trust in the power of the Spirit in him and not his own best efforts. So Jesus goes on, and when you turn back, you are going to turn around. You're going to go the wrong way. You are, but you are going to turn. Peter doesn't hear any of this. He's saying, no, not me, not me, not me. And Jesus keeps on talking. You're going to blow it. But when you turn back, you are going to be able to strengthen your brothers. See, the battle here is strength. Peter's human strength, well-intentioned strength, or laying down and dying and receiving the strength of the Spirit of God. And Jesus sums it up and says, when this is all over, you will have a strength. You will be able to strengthen your brothers, but it's not going to be your strength. It's going to be mine. Yours is going to die. And that's going to be good for you. It's good for you. It's good for you. How many times have you read the beginning of the book of James? Consider it all joy when all kinds of trouble comes. Yee! This is wonderful. Thank you so very much. But he goes on and he says, there's a reason why you should do that. Because going through trouble produces something better than gold. The ability to trust. And that's what this life is all about. Listen, you and I have a dilemma. We are people who do believe in miracles. Absolutely. We are people who do believe that prayer for the sick can heal the sick. We do believe that. But we also have to be mature enough to believe that it doesn't always happen. And when it doesn't, there is a reason. When it doesn't, God is working something in you that cannot be worked by success. Let me tell you, always being successful in prayer will do us a lot of damage. It will do us a lot of damage. You know why? Because it won't take very many repeated answers when we pray before we begin to believe that we must be praying Awful special. There must be something really good about the way our faith is working. Paul made it very clear that Christ had already appeared to him and revealed to him that he was going to preach the gospel in Rome. There's just one part of that vision that he didn't see quite so clearly. That he would go as a prisoner of Caesar. And he would go to spend his time in a prison. But in the midst of that, God didn't deliver him out of the chains, and yet he continued to work through the chains. We have to have a mature enough faith that will trust God, whether we see the prayer answered when, where, and how we want, or whether we don't. Our trust in him. So Paul could be the man who would be inspired to write, so we know that all things work together for our good. All things. All things are not good. What these men are going to do is not good, but it's going to be worked together by God. When you're cooking, all things don't taste good by themselves. 
But when you mix them all together, then you get the delicious thing you want. These trials are not all good, but God has promised to work them for our good. And the heroes of faith that we see throughout the Scripture, without fail, they all went through times of death to their ability. Moses hears the call of God to deliver his, his fellow countrymen, the Israelites, and he immediately goes out in his own effort and tries to do it, and he utterly fails, runs away in shame, trying to save his own life, and spends the next 40 years on the backside of the desert. But when God speaks to him again, he realizes he is now going with a power that's not his own. We know what Joseph's brothers did to him in selling him into slavery and all that happened to him through, the pro through that process. But the end of his story was that he was able to say to his brothers three times in one chapter, you did not send me here. God sent me. He used you. You had evil motives. They were not good motives. But God used your evil motives to do the right and righteous thing. And oh, by the way, you and your evil motives God used to get me here, and I'm here to save your rotten lives. Well, <laughs> he didn't say it exactly like that, but, but it was close. So we come back to Peter. Jesus has said, I'm telling you the truth of what's going to happen so that when it happens, you'll know. Jesus gave Peter a series of promises. Sadly, Peter didn't hear those promises because he kept emphatically defending his own loyalty. So now we get down to the garden. Judas shows up. They go to arrest Jesus. Peter knows that he has already blown his own horn loud again and again in front of the other men that even if he has to die, he's going to be loyal to Jesus. So he grabs a sword. He's going to deliver the Lord with a sword. Of course, there's only one little aspect to this that maybe we've not noticed before. He doesn't attack the chief of the guards. He attacks an unarmed servant and whacks his ear off. He can't even get his head. And when you read this story, i got to say, it just seems bizarre to me. When you read the story, Peter whacks at this servant, cuts his ear off. Jesus says to Peter, Put away your sword. If you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. Don't you know that I can call 10,000? And while he's saying it, he reaches down, picks up the ear, sticks it back on, and keeps talking to Peter. I mean, this is bizarre. I can't imagine what that servant must have thought. You know? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'd like to think that that day of Pentecost, that guy got saved. You know, I mean, come on. Let's see. You know? But Peter is going to, now, when that doesn't work, Peter and the other men, they turn tail and run. Now, we go on and read the story. The Bible says that the soldiers take Jesus back to the main square. And the way it was laid out in those days, the temple was down on one end. This is where the Sanhedrin ruled and the Pharisees ruled, Sadducees ruled. Then over here on the other side of the square was Herod's palace. He was ruling for Rome. And then the prefect that was over all of them was Pilate, and he was down at the other end of the same square. When you read the story, it says that Peter followed the crowd back to that center square area, that courtyard area, and he was watching what was going on. And while he was there, people started to say to him, hey, you're one of those guys' disciples. And Peter said, I am not. A little while later, somebody else said, hey, I recognize you. You're, 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 you're with that guy. And Peter said, I am not. Now, part of the, the, the drama that's going on 
is that the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, don't have the legal authority to put Jesus to death. So they send him through the courtyard to Herod's palace so that Herod will do the deed. But Herod doesn't want to run the risk because, as far as he can tell, this is an innocent man. So he beats him, and he has his soldiers drag him over to Pilate's place. Each time they take him from one place to another, they drag him through that courtyard. And he's being beaten more and more and more and more. And then Luke tells us that the third time that Peter denies Christ, it says this. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. There's only one way this could have happened. God so orchestrated these circumstances that the very moment Peter denied Christ the third time, the rooster crowed for the morning, and at that exact moment, the soldiers were dragging Jesus' bloody body from one palace to the next through the very courtyard where Peter and the crowd were standing. And at that exact moment, Jesus, through bloodied eyes, turned and looked, and Peter's eyes met Jesus. And the next verse says, and Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And Peter went outside and wept bitterly. Peter's a crushed man. He's a ruined man. He has failed in the worst possible ways you could fail. I'm sure he must have remembered the words of Jesus when Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father. He's just done this three times. In fact, not long after that, he tells the other guys, it's over for me. I'm done. I'm going back to what I know I can do by my own strength. I can fish. I've made a living doing that. And I'm going to go back to that. Why? Because it's the only thing that by my strength, I can succeed at that. I've messed up everything else that I've promised. Everything else I've committed myself to, I've messed it up. Now they take Jesus, they crucify him, put him in the grave, cover it with a stone, soldiers to guard it. Angels appear. On the third day, the stone is rolled back, and the women, Mary Magdalene, other women show up, thinking that they're going to prepare Jesus' body for final burial. But when they get there, they see the grave is not only open, but it's empty. And there's an angel standing there. And the angel says, he is not here, for he is risen. Now, Jesus had already told them in the Last Supper, on that last evening in John, he had already told them, I am going to rise again. And when I do, I want you to meet me in Galilee. Well, the angel says to the women, Go tell Jesus' men and Peter to meet me in Galilee. Every, t- every time I think about this story, it gets to me. He didn't just say, go tell my guys to meet me. But he said, go tell my guys and Peter. I can imagine a couple of reasons why he said it that way. One could very well have been that those other guys now know what Peter had done. He's not part of our group anymore. If it was just go tell my guys, 
They probably wouldn't have told Peter. Although the real reason may very well be that if he hadn't have said, and by the way, make sure Peter comes too, Peter would not have shown up because after what he's done, he wouldn't believe he's part of the group now. But the word of the Lord is, I want them all to be there. Peter is still my guy. Those men all scattered. They all fell away, but they are still my men. How many of you are grateful that God knows your heart when your actions don't always reveal it? You see, one of the principles that we have to hang on to is when Samuel, back in the Old Testament, went to Jesse's house to anoint the new king. Turns out to be David. But in that process, the word of the Lord comes. Man looks on the outward, but God looks on the heart. And that principle must hold us because we're going to fail. Our weakness is going to show up. It was common and ordinary for the epistle writers. Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, I'm not writing to you like one who's already attained to all of this. I'm writing about stuff that's way beyond where I am yet in my behavior, in my activity, in my faith. James writes in 3.2, for we all stumble in many ways. This is a progressive growth of sanctification in our lives. And sometimes it feels like it's two steps forward and three back. It certainly was that way for them. But Jesus had already seen them through all of this. The problem was when it says Peter remembered the word of the Lord, all he remembered was, you're going to fail. That's all he remembered. He didn't remember, but I've already prayed for you. I've already seen you through this. You're going to fail, but you're not going to completely fail. You're not going to utterly be wiped out. You will turn back again. And when you do, you'll have a power, a strength that you do not now have. Because what you've got now is going to die. It's going to be crushed. It's going to be falling into the ground and die. So that what grows out of it is going to be me living in and through you. He doesn't remember any of this. So they send out the word. Jesus said, come, meet us, meet me in Galilee. So they come. Jesus appears to them three times, more than that, but at the third time is when he shows up on the bank of the, of the uh, Sea of Galilee and he has made breakfast for them. Now they've met three times at this, at, or two times already. This is the third time. But as of yet, Jesus hasn't said anything to Peter about what he did. Don't you know every time Jesus showed up, Peter got really, really nervous? Because one way or another, we're going to have to address what I have done. The fact is, he did address it. But the way he addressed it is amazingly revealing about the heart of God. Now, when you just read this in English, well, let me, let me get to this. I love this. Uh, verse 15, this is John 21. We're going to come to 13 here in a minute. This is John 21. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And no doubt pointed at the other guys. Why would he do that? Well, remember the conversation at the dinner. Peter was sure that these would all be weak and they would all fall away. He was sure they would all fall away, but he wouldn't. Now Jesus comes and says, do you love me more than these? I don't know how in the world I could have answered that. But Jesus said, Lord, you know I love you. Now, there's a problem that we have here with the English translation. Because as with many words, the word love can mean a lot of different things. It does in our conversation and in our life. We love the Lord. We love our wives, our spouses. We love our kids. 
I love to fly fish, and, and I like Diet Coke. So, but, but those words all mean something different. And in Greek, there's actually two different words that are used here. One is the word agape. Agape is generally defined as God's love, supernatural love, a love that you, by your own willpower, cannot conjure up. It has to come from God. Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 13. The other word is phileo. We get that from the word, or we get the word Philadelphia from that, the city of brotherly love, and that's what it means. It means human love. It's not bad at all, but it's not divine love and can be conditional, and it certainly can fail where agape cannot fail. It sounds like this conversation is, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. That's the way it sounds in English because that's the way that, 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 that it happens. But in fact, here is the conversation using divine love and human brotherly love. Jesus said, Peter, do you love me with divine agape love? Peter said, Lord, you know the truth. I can only love you with phileo as a brother. Then Jesus said, Peter, do you love me with divine agape love? Peter said, Lord, you, 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 you know the truth. I can only love you as a brother with phileo. See, Peter already knows that he's somehow missing the reality here of what's going on. Then it says, Peter was grieved because Jesus asked him the third time. But now Peter gets to the heart of the issue because the third time Jesus says, do you love me as a brother? Do you love me with love? Do you love me then? As it, do you really? And Peter says, Lord, you know everything about me. You know me. You know me. You know me. That's where Jesus has been trying to get Peter through this whole process. I know you better than you know me. And I'm going to use all of this in transformation in your life. Now, quickly look in John 13, because I want you to see something here that has to do with context. When the Bible was originally written, it was not written in chapters and verses. When each of these letters or each of these uh, books were written, they were not written in chapter and verse. Those were added during the middle centuries to help us so that we could find our way through a, a rather large book. But part of the problem is sometimes a chapter break actually breaks up a thought or a conversation in this case. When you look at the end of John 13, where Jesus says, then Jesus answered, verse 38, the very last verse, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. If you will look at the next verse, Jesus is still talking. And he is talking primarily to Peter. Jesus says, you will deny me three times. But his next words are, do not let your heart be utterly crushed. You believe in God. Believe in me. Believe what I'm telling you is true. Do you see that? If you have a red letter Bible, there's no break there. Jesus keeps on talking. Certainly he's giving this promise to all those men. But he's talking directly at Peter. Peter, you're going to curse and swear you don't even know me three times. But do not let your heart be utterly crushed. You keep on believing. You believe in God the Father. Believe in what I'm telling you. In my Father's house, there are many places to dwell. And Peter, I am going there to make a place for you. Your story is not going to end with your denying me. Your story is not over. And I want you to hear the Spirit of God say to you right now, 
then whatever weakness you're struggling with, whatever failure you're facing, whatever bad choices you've recently made, your story is not over. And the God who started this work in you is going to keep on working in you. All you have to do is what Peter did. When the word went out, tell my men and Peter to meet me in Galilee. Peter only had to do one thing. He had to come and meet the Lord in Galilee. That's all he had to do. That's all he had to do. And that's all you and I have to do. If we've blown it, and we will, and we will more than once, if we made bad choices and we're reaping the bad fruit from that, the response we must give is, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. In my Father's house, there are many places to dwell. He has gone to make a place for you. You say, not me, not, not me, not the mess that I've been in. Oh, yeah, for you. If you'll come to meet him at the time of your failure, the time of your need, at the time of your weakness, he is ready to turn all things, make them all work together for your good if you draw near to him. Would you stand with me, please? Would you bow your heads? I just want this to be a private moment for a minute here. If you've never given the ownership of your life Jesus Christ, now is the time to make that decision. So I'm going to ask you right now, if you're the owner of your own life, but you would like to see a true change, the only way that's going to happen is for you to turn your life over to the Lord Jesus. He will forgive you, and He will begin a miracle inside of you. And what's required is for you to pray a prayer, something like this. I'm going to pray it. You pray it in your own words. Lord Jesus, I am so grateful that by your death, you paid for the penalty of my sin, my rebellion, my selfishness. And the way I've been leading my life has not gotten me what I so crave. And that's to know you, to know my Creator. So I'm asking you now, I want to surrender the ownership of my life to you. And I'm asking you to come into me by your spirit. I don't understand how that's going to work. But I'm trusting you now with my life. I'm turning it over to you now. And I'm asking you to come and live inside of me. Make me your child. And start me on the journey of being transformed by your power, your life inside of me. Changing me from the inside out. In Jesus' name. If you pray that prayer. I want to assure you that a miracle is beginning in you right now. And I would encourage you to not leave this building until you have a chance to talk to somebody who can share a bit with you, pray with you, and help you in the beginning of this new journey in Christ. If you're a believer and you're struggling with condemnation, the accuser wants to steal your confidence with God by making you so aware of your own weakness that you become unaware of the fact that God has promised that as you draw near to him, he will turn everything around for your good. And he will set you again on the path with confidence in him. If that's your situation, then we've got people up here who want to pray with you. Don't leave before you have an opportunity to have your mind washed and renewed and made confident again that your story is not over. And the one who started this miracle life in you, he will finish it. That's his promise to each one of us. Amen.
Join us on this new covenant journey at markdrake.org.